I'm Logan Crawford, and right now on The Right Way, we are taking a deep dive into historical fiction by an author who has written three amazing novels that are steeped in truth. Her name is Annie Raywalt, and her books are called Survivors of the Lost Colony, Mohammed's Cousin, and St. Clotilda, Queen of Franks. And we are delighted to have Annie join us here today on The Right Way. Annie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Logan. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. Have you always been a person very interested in history? Yes. Uh, my, my bachelor's degree was in history, mm-hmm. and I taught history for many years, uh, ninth grade, and just love it. I, I love to read history. I love to read historical fiction. So finally, after a little bit with the prodding of my sisters saying, oh, come on, you could do that. Write a book, write a book. So I actually gave it a try, finally. Wonderful. Well, we're glad you did. I love historical fiction as well. Pillars of the Earth mm. is one of my favorites because you really feel like you're back there in medieval times with this cathedral builder and this church builder. I also loved your books. Let's start by talking about Survivors of the Lost Colony, which is really a fascinating chapter in American history. Let's tell the folks at home what this book is all about. Okay. Well, it's a little known bit of American history. It's not even in some history books. Uh, you, You don't find mention of it very often. But when you do, it, at least for me, it piques your interest and you want to know more. What I, what I read about about seven years ago was a baby born in Virginia, and so she was named Virginia, Virginia Dare, and she was the first white baby, the first British baby born in America. But nobody knows what happened to her. There's just a complete loss of information after she was baptized. Her grandfather saw her baptized in the New World, in Roanoke, and then he had to go back to England to try to bring more supplies so they would survive. And when he got back three years later, they were gone. Nobody knows what happened to them, which made me excited because that means I could write what I think happened to them. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That is a wonderful premise because... You've got the framework of this colony in Virginia, and then you have this young baby born named Virginia, and what the heck ever happened to her, and then you take the story from there. Give the audience a little bit of how you novelize this and what kind of experience uh, Virginia had as the first Brit born in the United States or what would become the United States. You bet, Logan. In the book, I have three main characters, Eleanor Dare, the baby's mother, John White, the the mother, the mother's father, the governor of the little colony, and Manteo, an an American Indian who went to England for a year, lived with Sir Walter Raleigh, and helped them with information about the new world that Queen Elizabeth was interested in. So those three people are three of the main characters. I invented a fourth main character who I named Alsume, which was the local part of the local uh, vernacular 
-hmm. And she was uh, in my in my writing. I made her the tribe's healer, the medicine woman, if you will. Always a very important member of the tribe. And what I did was each chapter in order is the perspective of each of those four people, starting with Eleanor Dare. Then the next chapter is Alsume. Then the next chapter after that is Manteo. And then the, the fourth chapter in the listing is John White. And then it goes that in that order all through the book so that you keep getting a glimpse of what's going on from each of those four main people. That was a, that's that. a wonderful storytelling uh, framework, I think. Yeah, it allowed me to have different points of view and see what was happening from different perspectives. Wonderful, wonderful. And that gives the reader all those perspectives as well. For the folks at home who don't remember the story of the lost colony, let's revisit that a little bit. Tell us about that story, because it really is a fascinating part of history, and a lot of people don't realize what happened. Yeah, it's not really known very much. So John White was chosen by Sir Walter Raleigh to head up the beginning of a, a colony in the New World. He got... 109, I think it was, uh, colonists to sign up to go. And he outfitted three ships full of everything they would need, hoes and, and plows, shovels, saws, everything they would need to cut down the trees, build houses, and get started farming. Then when they got there, after a long and difficult voyage, they got to the New World but unfortunately, they were dropped off in the wrong place. They weren't dropped off uh, up on Puget Sound, which would have been better weather, uh, better accommodation from the local Native Americans. And they dropped them off in the further in the south on Roanoke Island. And that is where they had to try to make a go of it. We know for a fact that things were tough from the beginning because John White was determined to get help for his family, his daughter, his granddaughter, his son-in-law. And he was decided it would go back to England to have the Queen send a shipment of more people and more uh, weapons, more grain to plant, everything they needed. And th this was impossible. They couldn't send any ships because the Spanish Armada was getting prepared and Queen Elizabeth could not afford to lose any ships. She needed every ship in the, in the country to be ready to, to defend the British coast. So he was stymied. He wasn't able to get back to, to help his daughter and his granddaughter. When he finally did get back three years later, they were gone. There was no trace of anyone. There was uh, empty buildings. There was a, a carved note on a tree trunk that said Croatoan. That was the name of the local Indian tribe. 
one thing that was a clue that they weren't in harm's way was that there was not an upside down cross that was determined to be the signal if they were in jeopardy. There was no upside down cross. So at least he felt confident that they were okay and that they had left without being attacked. That's it. That's all yeah. we know. So he we don't know weapon. if they somehow migrated somewhere else, assimilated somewhere else, whether they were killed, murdered, uh, no bodies were found, no bones were no, found, no, no remnants bones, like that? No bones, no graves, just empty, deserted buildings, nothing. Amazing. And he went back to England and he was a, a, a sad, broken man, never able to find out what happened to his daughter and granddaughter. Amazing. Amazing. So it's called the lost colony because indeed it was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was quite an attractive uh, lure that was used to get people to come to this colony. And that was 500 acres per person. Yes. Sir Walter Raleigh had a huge amount of land given to him by Queen Elizabeth. Not that it was hers to give, but that's another matter. Anyway, yes, he, his enticement for people to come along was 500 acres per man, of course. Women didn't count much, but he he was able to get 124 men to sign up. At the last minute, some, several pulled out. They were fearful, but uh, they had enough people to start a small colony if they had good land, if they were not harassed by the local Native Americans, and if they were able to stop at one of the islands nearby off the coast in the Caribbean to purchase cows and sheep and goats and uh, other animals that they would need to raise for food and to have them there on the, on the farms with them. They weren't able to do that. The uh, Portuguese captain of the main ship was very disinterested in these colonists starting a colony. He was interested in one thing, gold. He wanted to be out on the ocean pursuing Spanish ships that were full of gold and taking them as his prize. Amazing. So, so he did not cooperate, and they didn't. They arrived without an, a cow to the to to their name. It's just amazing the fortitude that it took, the courage that it took to cross the sea, which was a daunting task in and of itself, and then come to this uncharted land that was extremely primitive. And they had to create a society from scratch. It's just, it's amazing what, what our forefathers and our forebearers did. Yes, and they didn't have so much. They didn't have uh, a doctor. They didn't have, they only had four soldiers. Uh, they didn't have food that was very good. Uh, after that long at sea, you were down to crumbly hardtack and uh, beef jerky. So it was arduous at best. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. 
And tell me about your teaching experience. Was this something you really enjoyed teaching children? Are you yes. retired from teaching at this point? Do you yes, still teach? Tell yes. me a little no, bit about I, that. I'm a retired teacher, as is my husband. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I loved teaching. I didn't teach American history very long. I, I focused more on world history. I really loved ancient history around the world. Uh, I loved teaching uh, and talk, teaching the kids the, the local art as well. Every country has a distinctive art form or more than one in many cases that is actually you can teach a child to do it. For example, uh, in Russia, the Ukrainian Easter eggs, very delicately decorated with geometric patterns. So I taught them how to do a, a symmetrical pattern and then they actually put it on an egg. They ho hollowed out an egg. I taught them how to do that. And then they got it dry and they painted it. And my gosh, they were spectacular. We hung them from the ceilings to decorate the classroom. When we were studying Japan, I taught them how to do origami. And uh, they loved that. And we had those all around the room too. I tried to find some kind of artwork that, that they could do in every part of the country we studied. Wonderful. That really brings the culture to life. I mean, when you think about it, what is a culture? It's basically people, their norms and their art. And to the part that you could capture perhaps most easily was bringing the art into the classroom and the, the students, I'm sure, responded quite well to these exercises. Yeah, it was fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Your other book you write about is called Mohammed's Cousin. And uh, was Mohammed, I'm sure Mohammed and many cousins, um, but tell us a little bit about the origins of this book. He did. He had dozens of cousins because his father was one of many in the family and his uh, grandfather was a, a prolific uh, man as well. So there were uh, many, many uncles and aunts and many cousins. I wrote about Muhammad because I really wish more people knew what a humble, kind-hearted soul he was. Mm. He, he was an orphan from being a small child. His mother died. She was frail. And his father died of the fever uh, when he was inside his mother's womb, he wasn't even born yet. So it fell to his grandfather to raise him. And this was a very kind old man. And he took the boy under his wing, had him sitting on his seat cushion with him in the, in the bazaar near the mosque. And he taught him everything about what it means to be a man. And in the Bedouin culture, that includes the blood feud. If someone hurts someone in your family, you have to hurt them in return. But Muhammad didn't grow up with that being the focus of his life. He, he saw things that could be improved in Bedouin culture. And as an adult, that is what he tried to do. He tried to teach people how to be kind to each other, how to respect each other. And when he, he didn't mean to start a religion, but when he became an adult, he became very well respected in the community. And so people listened to what he had to say mm -hmm. and they started following him. And 
making a point of listening to him when he would talk in the in the crowds. So I loved writing about the culture, as you said, culture is an accumulation of the customs and the art and everything about the way of life. Mm -hmm. And the Bedouin way of life was very distinctive. It's all but died out now, but they had beautiful woven art. They wove the goat hair into cloth, which was made into tents. They lived in tents and they had uh, a marvelous way of moving from place to place, following the water and following the grazing areas for their animals, whether they had camels or goats or horses, uh, that was part of their social stratification as well. The wealthier Bedouins had horses, the poorest had goats, mm. but they all lived with the same uh, respect for the water. The water was all important in their in their culture. Yeah, it's it's interesting when it gets down to surviving, people very instinctively know what they need. They need an animal, they need water, they need shelter. So uh, those are the basic things that help life thrive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Muhammad's Cousin is a novel. Tell me a little bit about the structure of the novel and for the folks at home, the story of your novel. Okay. Well, we start with the, the early childhood of Muhammad's cousin, uh, Khalil, I named him. And he's a fictional character, but I based everything about his life on the research I did about Bedouins and how they're raised. <clears throat> Wealthy Bedouins uh, sent their children out to stay with a Bedouin tribe for their early childhood, to get them steeped in Bedouin culture and to harden them up so that they would be strong men. Uh, the all, only the boys were sent out. The girls weren't sent out. So the the little boys was were sent out to live in uh, a tent with their uh, foster parents and learn what it was like to survive in the desert. And as he grows up, he meets his grandfather, uh, and he meets uh, a cousin named Muhammad. They become friends. And from that point on, Muhammad is an extra uh, essential character in the book. Mm -hmm. And these two cousins become very close friends. And they see every opportunity to not exactly get into mischief, but to see more of their world in Mecca. Mm -hmm. After their time of uh, being a foster child was over and they were living in Mecca with their families again, they had opportunities to go to weddings, mm -hmm. to kind of crash the wedding. They weren't invited, but everybody's really a cousin to, to somebody. And so they would kind of sneak into the outside edges of the weddings 
to see who who was there, to see what they were wearing. And as they get older, as I said before, uh, Muhammad was a very eloquent speaker and people came to listen to him and to listen to the way he spoke. He had a beautiful, clear form of Arabic that he spoke, that he learned in the desert from his foster parents. There wasn't any slang. There wasn't any uh, any, any minced words. He spoke clearly and to the point, and this drew people to him. And as you get on in the book, you learn more and more about the things that were in what became the Quran, the, the speakings, the teachings of Muhammad. And those were gathered on little pieces of paper that people had written down uh, what they had heard him say. Hmm. At first, it was all verbal, oral. And then later on, people had, had uh, copied out the speeches he'd given. And those were compiled into what became known as the Quran. Interesting. Um, Almost like the New Testament, where it was composed after the mm -hmm. death of uh, the, the, the figure. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. Did you learn a lot yourself about uh, the Quran and Islam by writing this book? Oh, yes. I always learn more than, than I can put in the book. Yeah. Uh, I learned so much and i i got three copies of the quran actually so that i could see what different translations uh how they how they changed because it's not all verbatim it was uh it was in arabic of course and it was so long ago and so words change meanings change the way you write something changes after that many years it was 900 AD. Goodness, that's a millennium ago. Uh, so as with the Bible, different translations sound different. They have different ways of expressing things. The King James does not sound like the American standard. And so that is the case uh, with the Quran as well. There are different translations that have slightly different nuances. And... Uh, People who are really purists uh, take on the task of reading it once in their life in Arabic so that they're not swayed in any way by a translation that might be steering them in the wrong direction. Very interesting. Now, you have very positive feelings about Muhammad. When you're reading the Quran, did you see this mostly as a book of peace? Did you see what critics sometimes say as uh, treaties for war? Uh, tell me a little bit about your overall impressions with uh, keeping in mind this controversial element that's involved sometimes in uh, interpreting the Quran. Sure. Uh, I, I came away from my research with very positive feelings about Muhammad and the Quran and his intentions that were, I think, taken out of context. And uh, people after Muhammad died 
uh, took some of his words, I think, out of context, as I said, and changed the meaning of them to their own purposes. Mm. Uh, I really believe he was a peaceful man, and he didn't intend for all of the warfare that happened after he died. Absolutely. Now, was it difficult writing about Muhammad in a novelized form in that a lot of followers of Islam are protective of his image, of his name, of his history? Yeah, I, I tried to be respectful of that and didn't uh, include anything that they might take offense to without changing anything, but uh, including everything about his life that was that was known and a good deal of his life after he became an adult is known. I, I wanted to fill out his life as fully as possible, but not offend anyone. Absolutely. Have you heard from any followers of Islam who might have read, read your book? No, I haven't. That would be interesting. That would be interesting indeed. Yeah. Let's talk about your third book. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. St. Clotilda, Queen mm -hmm. of Franks? Yes. Okay. Yes, difficult difficult name, Clotilda. Yeah. And there are other ways of writing it and spelling it that are even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Tell she us a was, little bit about her story. She was a true fairy princess. She was a princess in Burgundy, which is, is as you know, in France, mm -hmm. great wine country and was even then. Uh, we're going way back now to the to 6th century AD. And they're already growing grapes and making wine in Burgundy. Her parents are very wealthy, the king and queen of Burgundy. And she is a, a pampered princess, and she grows up with tutors, teaching her everything she wants to know, and languages and classics. And she's reading Greek uh, stories and Greek comedies and dramas. And uh, she is completely ripped out of her life when her parents are killed and she's taken prisoner by her uncle. Mm. And that's the, the big change in her life. She then is in a convent where she's being sort of held prisoner, but it's in a nice place at least, and they're feeding her and they're taking care of her. But that's where her uncle dumps her. And she has to find out how of her own way to get out of there and get on with her life. Luckily, a nearby king in his own kingdom to the north of Burgundy had sent some of his, his uh, authoritative people, advisors to him. He had sent them to meet her because she was famous for being well-educated and beautiful as well. And he sent his emissaries down to meet her and to make an offer of marriage to her father. And at that point, she had turned them down. But now that she's being held prisoner in a monastery, she's decided to turn him, <laughs> to, to change her mind and 
take him up on the offer. So she finagles a way to get out of there and get up to where he is. And uh, she marries him. And that's the beginning of her her life with pagans. Mm -hmm. uh, he was not a Christian. He had uh, belief in uh, Odin, the, the Norse god. And he didn't really care what she believed, didn't care that she wanted to go to mass in the local cathedral every day. But he wasn't uh, inclined to change religions until he got in a very bad situation where his army was losing. They weren't used to losing. And he decided to pray to her God. And after praying to her God, the army was victorious. Mm -hmm. So he decided to convert to Christianity. That changed everything. That changed history and made France what, because their kingdom, the Frankish kin kingdom became known as France. And that changed them into a Catholic country. And she went on to do many good works, take care of the poor and the sick and the needy. And they eventually, after her death, they made her a saint, Saint Clotilde. Amazing. That's a fascinating chapter of, uh, a history, world history and the Catholic Church that I was not aware of, um, St. Clotilda. So aside from her helping her husband find religion, what distinguished her as a saint? No, no great miracles that you mm -hmm. usually associate with saints. Right. Just the good works she did. She, she spent a fortune on the poor, uh, the sick, the, the, the homeless. And uh, she so sort of like Mother Teresa, where it wasn't something, you know, fantastic or miraculous. It was more like just a consistent, good and great life throughout her time. Yeah, that's it, basically. Yeah. yeah oh, wonderful. Now, this was a novelized story. Tell me how you novelized her story. OK, I gave her a confidant uh, who was a servant. Uh, she <clears throat> was was Clotilda's companion, her seamstress. Uh, she did everything with Clotilda. And Clotilda poured her heart uh, and soul out to uh, the seamstress and took her into her life completely. And so we are exposed by way of the seamstress being the narrator of the novel we are introduced to everything through her eyes amazing well these are three wonderful books from chatting with you i've learned a lot if our folks at home read these books they'll learn even more they are called survivors of the lost colony muhammad's cousin and saint clotilda queen of france and it is they are all written by Annie Raywalt, and it's been a delight having her here today on The Right Way. Annie, anything you'd like to add before we leave today? Uh, you can look up my name or, or any of the book names on uh, Amazon.com and find out more about them. Absolutely. We will have the links below this interview posted okay. as well. 
so you can find out more about Annie and her works. It is a great way to get involved and learn about American history and world history, some unique chapters that have really shaped this planet from the founding of the United States to the founding of a major religion to the founding of a country, the country of France. Annie, thank you so much for joining us here today on The Right Way. Sure. If I could just add one th other sure. thing, you can find out more about me and about my books on my website, which is very new. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to raywaltannie.com. RayWaltAnnie.com, and that is on your screen right now as well. So the folks can go and click that and go buy the books, find links, descriptions. And uh, I visited the website myself. It's a wonderful website, so I highly recommend it. To the folks at home, I'm Logan Crawford, thanking you for your time this time. Until next time, on The Right Way.